And uh, as you can see, we are in a two-part series. We started it last Sunday called Resurrection Fact or Fiction. And I just thought it would be good before Easter to take some time and talk about some of the evidence that we have for the claims of Christianity, particularly the central claim of Christianity, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Last week, the message was called The Christian Conspiracy. And we, we dealt with the question or the claim that the Gospels are really just lies, that the Lord Jesus did not rise from the dead. Instead, his followers just made it up. And we talked about that last week. And if you missed that message, you can go to fcbc.life. And there you can hear the evidence that we gave for how the the claims of Christ are not conspiracy. They're the confessions of eyewitnesses. Well, there's another claim that comes up, and that is that the idea of Jesus being God in flesh and that he performed miracles and he performed the greatest miracle of all, which was rising from the dead, bodily alive, three days after he was crucified, is nothing more than a myth and that it's a legend. And often you'll hear that by many skeptics who will say that all of that stuff about Jesus being God and the miracles he did and his resurrection, all of that came later, hundreds of years after Jesus lived, as his followers added to the story of Jesus with each retelling. In fact, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you've heard that claim and you didn't know how to answer it. Well, my hope is after today, you'll have some understanding of the evidence that does not support that claim that what we believe is a myth or legend or a fairy tale. As a matter of fact, you know how fairy tales begin? Once upon a time. And, and how many of you liked fairy tales when you were kids? Uh, many of you did. Some of you won't admit it now, but you did. And, but we have the grown-up version of fairy tales. They begin like this, in a galaxy far, far away. That's how our fairy tales begin. And many people say that's what you read whenever you read the gospel. You're just reading fairy tales. And as a follower of Jesus, you need to know for your own faith why that is not true. And you need to be able to defend your faith to others who had that accusation. Now, perhaps you have that question. Maybe you're one who says, Ricky, I think there's something to that argument that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth that it didn't happen, but it was only created as people kept telling and retelling the story of Jesus. Maybe you read a book, or maybe you watched a blog post, or maybe uh, you went to college and you heard a literature or prof professor say that Jesus was just a man, he was a peasant, social worker, he went about doing good, and a lot of people liked him, and he had some pretty good teachings, but at about the age of 33, he got on the wrong side of the political authorities and the religious authorities. And before you know it, he is hanging on a cross, condemned to die. And of course, his saddened disciples wanted to keep the story of Jesus alive. And they wanted to keep those sermons alive. And so they just kept telling and retelling the story of Jesus. But you know how it is whenever we tell story after Years, we start adding to it, and we embellish it, and some of the details get changed. And before you know it, the man Jesus has become the myth, the son of God. Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, has become the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. But it's just myth. 
It just happened over time. And these Gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus even lived. And so if you have those kind of questions or those kind of concerns, you're in the right place. Our church is a safe place for people, whether they believe like we do or not, whether they believe this stuff or not. Our church is a safe place for people wherever they are on their journey or their understanding. And it's a safe place to ask your questions. And so I hope even today, if you are a skeptic, or you're concerned or you're troubled about the claims of Christianity, that you'll take some time to listen today to the evidence that I believe supports the idea that what we believe is not a myth, it's not a legend. Jesus truly is the Lord, the Son of God, and we can trust the the gospel accounts of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so what I want to do today is present three lines of evidence or three arguments that historians use whenever they look at any ancient document to pull out the history from the mythology. And there are more than these three, but we're just going to focus on three of these lines of reasoning or argument or evidence that historians use no matter what the ancient document. And here's what I believe. If you treat the Bible like you treat any other ancient document, the Bible holds up well to that kind of scrutiny. And so to help you maybe follow me, I'm going to use three words that start with E's, the letter E, to help you uh, follow these arguments. The the words are embellished, embarrassing, and early. Uh, One of the things that historians use is the criteria of embellishment. They look at a document and they say, can we find evidence that this story has been embellished with legendary details and mythological details And we're going to have to find those, pull those out, so that we can then have the core of historical truth. And whenever you do that to the Gospels, you discover that the biblical accounts of Jesus are not embellished like legends. They're not embellished like legends. Now, certainly, the Gospels detail miracles. Even the resurrection is the miracle of all miracles, that Jesus would physically rise from the dead. But if you want to hear what a Jesus legend sounds like, read the Gospel of Peter. During this time of the year, the History Channel or some of those news channels will bring out these lost Gospels. They're not in your Bible. And there's some secret that the church doesn't want you to hear. First of all, they're not lost. You know about them. I know about them. Historians have known about them for almost 2,000 years. They're not lost. But one of them is called the Gospel of Peter. It's it's not the Gospel of Peter. It was written in the mid-2nd century, and it's falsely ascribed to Peter. He didn't write it. He didn't have anything to do with it. But in the Gospel of Peter, you had this resurrection story of Jesus. And it goes something like this. On that first resurrection morning, before the sun rises, you've got a large group of people who have gathered at the tomb of Jesus, waiting for him to rise from the dead. You've got the chief priest of Israel. You've got the Pharisees. You have the Roman soldiers there. And you've got just a lot of people, a crowd of people from the surrounding region who have gathered to watch for the resurrection of Jesus. I guess it was the first Easter sunrise service uh, that we have here. As they're all gathered before the tomb... A great voice cries out from heaven. And whenever this booming voice is heard, the stone rolls back by itself from the tomb. 
Then two men are seen coming down from heaven, just flashing like lightning. And they go into the tomb. And then those same two men come out of the tomb carrying a third man. Now these are giant men. The two who went in, they're so massive and huge, their heads reach the clouds. The third man they bring out, he's even bigger. His heads surpass the, the clouds. This is the picture now. These three giants reaching up into the sky. Then a cross comes out of the tomb. This big cross comes up. And then the voice from heaven says to the cross, Hast thou preached to them that sleep? And the cross talks. The cross says, Yay. <laughs> That's in the Gospel of Peter. Written almost 200 years after Jesus. Myth and legend. It is obviously not historical. And then you contrast that telling of the resurrection with the gospel retelling. And you discover how simple and to the point that the gospels are. In fact, listen to John chapter 20 verses 1 through 8. In contrast, the way John describes the resurrection scene with how the so-called gospel of Peter describes it. John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. By the way, that's John, the apostle's way of describing himself in his own book. I'm the one that Jesus loved. And this is what Mary Magdalene said to them. Not, he is risen. They weren't expecting the resurrection. She said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I like what one preacher said. Nobody expected nobody. They fully expected to find his dead body there. But she says, somebody has taken his body. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. A simple step-by-step -step retelling of what happened. No embellishment to make the disciples look better. No extravagant details. No drama here. Just this is what happened. We learn what day it was. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. It was early. We learn who's involved in this account of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, John the Apostle. We, we discover what they discovered. The tomb is empty. We discover they assumed somebody had stolen the body at first. We even read about a race between Peter and John and who won the race, who got there first. We even read details about what they saw when they looked into the tomb, that those linen cloths that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus to embalm him were still there. And even the face cloth that had been placed over the closed eyes of Jesus was still there in the tomb, but it had been neatly folded together. And all the women said, that's a miracle. Neatly folded together and placed in a place by itself. 
These are the details. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is just those eyewitnesses retelling the story. Yes, this is a miracle, but the story lacks the embellishment in the exaggeration that is absolutely common in mythology. In fact, the apostle Peter, who was there that day to see the tomb empty, who was there on that same resurrection Sunday and who saw Jesus alive with his own eyes, the same apostle Peter who would suffer all of the rest of his life for one reason, he had his faith in Jesus and he preached the resurrection of Jesus. And the same Peter who would die as a martyr for Jesus and the resurrection testimony said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, what's the word? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's not myth. This is not legend. This is the testimony of eyewitnesses. So there are three lines of evidence for the historical reliability of the biblical accounts. Line one, the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection are not embellished like legends. And then line two has the word embarrassment. Historians will look at a document and say, how can we discern whether the witnesses who say they saw what they saw and experienced what they experienced did what they did, how can we tell if they're telling the truth that they're making this up? One of the things that they find is if you find embarrassing details that these witnesses include about themselves or their movement, chances are you're reading the truth. Because it's human nature that when we tell lies, we do it for one of two reasons, to either get ourselves out of trouble or to make ourselves look better, right? That's why we tell lies to get ourselves out of trouble, or to make ourselves look better. And historians say whenever we look at ancient documents, if we find embarrassing details included, we know we're probably looking at the truth. So what do we find whenever we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus? We find that the biblical accounts of Jesus contain embarrassing facts. Look at uh, the disciples, how they are portrayed. They're portrayed as dim-witted. Over and over, the Bible says Jesus teaches something, and then they say, we don't know what you're talking about. We have no clue what you mean by that. They're dim-witted. They're uncaring. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, he says, stay awake with me, pray with me, and they fall asleep on him twice. And they make no effort to give him a proper burial after he dies. They're dim-witted. They're uncaring. They are rebuked. Peter, who many people believe today, I think wrongly so, but many people believe today was the first pope. Even Peter is rebuked by Jesus when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty embarrassing for the leader of the church. And Paul has to rebuke Peter later because Peter's gotten wrong some theological issue. They're dim-witted, they're uncaring, they're rebuked by Jesus and others. They are cowards. Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times. When Jesus is arrested, the disciples run like little schoolgirl children whenever Jesus is arrested. It's the women who were the brave ones who didn't abandon Jesus. But the guys, when the going gets tough, they got going. They go hide in an upper room. They're dim witted, uncaring, rebuked, they're cowards. They are doubters. 
Despite being taught three times by Jesus explicitly, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He will be beaten and crucified. He will die. But on the third day, he'll rise from the dead. They still did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. And some of them are even doubtful when Jesus physically shows up. They think they're seeing a ghost. They don't believe that Jesus is alive from the dead. And Jesus doesn't escape the Gospels unscathed. There are even embarrassing things about him written in the Gospels. He's considered out of his mind by his own family who comes to seize him and to take him home, Mark chapter 3. He's deserted by many of his followers. His own brother, James, does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I, I kind of agree with James on that. I mean, what would your brother have to do to convince you he's the Son of God? So I was there when you got your learner's permit. You ain't the Son of God. I know that. So what... what you can't blame James, but by the way, if you're a skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus, one of the things you've got to answer is how do you account for the dramatic transformation of the younger brother of Jesus, James, who at first did not believe he's the Son of God and who later comes to faith in Jesus and lives the rest of his life preaching he is none other than God in flesh, risen from the dead, and who died as a martyr with that testimony on his lip. You have to answer what transformed his life. The only thing that convinced me my brother is the son of God is if he died and rose again. And Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He pulled it off and it convinced James. More, more embarrassing details about Jesus. Uh, he turns off Jewish believers to the point they want to stone him to death. He's called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has a prostitute wipe his feet with her hair and oil. And he is crucified, despite the fact that his own Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23 says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And the Jews never believed their Messiah would die, much less die, a crucifixion. Listen, friend, if you're writing or rewriting history of the Christian movement, you will weed out these embarrassing facts to make your founder look better and to make you look better because you're telling people, trust us, believe us. So you want to buttress your case, make your case look as convincing as possible. But that's not what you read in the Gospels. You just simply read what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because they were just recording the facts as they experienced them. So embellishment, the biblical accounts lack the embellishment of legend. Embarrassing, embarrassing facts are found in the biblical accounts, which most historians will say that tends to point to the credibility of what you're reading. Because people usually change things and lie about things to make themselves look good or to get out of trouble. But the third reason or the third criteria, I should say, that historians use for ancient documents is the criteria of the dating of that document. Is it an early document that is close to when the events took place? Why is that important? Because if what you're reading was written close to the event, there's less time 
for the details to be changed. And there are still people alive who can say to people who do try to change it or who get their facts wrong, hey, that's not right. That's not how it happened. So were the Gospels early or were they, like the skeptics say, written 100, 200 years after Jesus? Well, A.N. Sherwin-White is an Oxford historian. Uh, I own his book called Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. He is a preeminent scholar. He is a part of the British Academy. You are not inducted into the British Academy if you're not brilliant. And he is one of the greatest scholars on Roman history. And so he started looking at myth and legend in Roman culture. And he started testing what it takes for those myths and legends to develop over time. And this is what he said. He said, even two generations are too short a span to allow the mythical tendency to prevail over the hard historic core of the oral tradition. He says, sure, legends and myths happen as people tell stories and retell stories and embellish stories or change stories or just make stuff up. He said, but even two generations are not enough for that to happen because within two generations there are still people who can fact check and there are still people who remember, and there are still people who can write contradictory reports to your report. And none of that is found in ancient history concerning the Christian faith. And the great news is we can say Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written early after the death of Jesus. The reason we know that is because of how we date the book of Acts. Now, don't glaze over on me. Just hang in there for a moment. Um, every Bible scholar, whether they're secular or Christian, will say that the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, was written after Matthew was written, Mark the gospel was written, and Luke was written. Those are called the synoptic gospels. And so if Acts was written early, then we know Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written even earlier because Acts came first. And most scholars are convinced the book of Acts was written between A.D. 60 or A.D. 62. Just 30 years after Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written earlier than 30 years. This is well within A.N. Sherwin-White's two-generation time frame. You say, how do you know the book of Acts was written between A.D. 60 and 62? I'm so glad you asked. wanted to share that anyway. We know, based on many pieces of evidence, but there are two primary reasons why we know the book of Acts was written before A.D. 62. And that is because of two things the book of Acts does not mention. The book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, does not mention two major events that would be there if the book was written later. The book of Acts does not mention the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, including the destruction of the Jewish temple. And the book of Acts does not mention the death of the preeminent leader of the Christian church, the Apostle Paul. Now just think about that for a moment. Most historians say that's proof that the book of Acts was written early. Could you imagine not including the destruction of the temple if it had occurred by the time the book of Acts was written? 
Imagine you are going to write a book on, let's say, the World Trade Center. And in your book, you detail how the World Trade Center was conceived, how architects designed it, how it comprised seven buildings, but the two prominent, iconic buildings were the Twin Towers. And the Twin Towers were 110 stories each. And as you're writing your book, you talk about how 50,000 people work in the Twin Towers every day. And 200,000 visitors come to the World Trade Center every single day. And your book ends with the fact that the World Trade Center complex is so massive, it has its own zip code. 10048. And you close your book. You end your book. The end. What would anyone assume after having read your book as to the date you wrote it? What would they assume? When was your book written? You may not know the exact date, but you know it was written before September the 11th, 2001. Because in your book, you didn't mention that on September the 11th, 2001, the greatest terrorist attack in American history was perpetrated primarily at the World Trade Center, but also at the Pentagon and in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and 3,000 Americans were killed. And those towers were absolutely turned into rubble. Anyone with a brain would say this book was written prior to 9-11. The World Trade Center was the epitome, the symbol for the terrorist of America's financial power and the center of American financial life. But something far greater was symbolized in the city of Jerusalem. It was the holy city of God. And the temple was the center of religious life and cultural life and political life for the Jewish people for the past thousand years and for its destruction in A.D. 70 to not be mentioned proves the book of Acts was written prior to that A.D. 70. Most scholars say A.D. 60 to 62 because when the book of Acts closes, Jerusalem is still there, the temple is still there. There's another thing omitted that scholars say proves the book of Acts was written early. And that is the Apostle Paul's death is not mentioned in the book of Acts. Whenever the book of Acts closes, the Apostle Paul is under house arrest by Nero because he is a Christian and he's going to be put on trial for his faith. That's how the book of Acts ends. His martyrdom is nowhere mentioned in the book of Acts which there again lends credence to the fact that Jesus' resurrection happened early and these book of Acts and the history of the book of Acts was written early. We don't know exactly when Paul was beheaded by Nero. We know Nero died probably late A.D. 67. So Paul was crucified somewhere between A.D. 62 and A.D. 67. You say, is that really convincing that the book of Acts is written early? Well, imagine you pick up at the library a little booklet on the life of JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and you read about how he was born to wealthy and politically connected parents in Brookline, Massachusetts, and you read that his father had great ambitions for JFK and his siblings, 
You learned about his early life and how he received the best education Americans can afford. Later, he joins the United States Navy and serves valiantly during World War II. You read how he comes home and he enters into the political arena and he runs for a seat in the United States House of Representatives and wins. A few years later, he runs for U.S. Senator and wins. And after serving as a U.S. Senator for several years, he runs for the presidency of the United States. And on November 8, 1960, he defeats Richard Milhouse Nixon to become the 35th president of the United States, the second youngest man to ever be elected to that office. You keep reading this little booklet about how the biggest issues he faced were the Cold War between the West and the United States and the Soviet Union, particularly personified with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the civil rights issue here at home. In fact, the article, little booklet that you're reading, concludes with how after Martin Luther King Jr. gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech, that in 1963, President Kennedy finally submitted civil rights legislation to Congress that would eventually lead to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But as the little booklet ends, it ends with President Kennedy getting ready for his next campaign for his second term he hoped to win in office. What would anyone reading that booklet conclude about the date of that booklet. You say, well, it doesn't mention the death of JFK. So it must have been written before November 22nd, 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas by Lee Harvey Oswald. By the way, I've stood there and I've looked up there on the streets of Dallas at that little window of the school book depository. And if I'm reading an article, a book, about the life of JFK, and it doesn't mention his assassination, I'm going to assume it was written prior to his assassination. And whenever you come to the book of Acts, the most influential Christian leader becomes the apostle Paul. Half of the book of Acts is about his conversion, about his missionary endeavors all over the Roman Empire, about his church planting efforts, about his suffering for the cause of Christ. And yet he's still alive and in under house arrest when the book of Acts ends. I'm going to assume, most scholars assume, it was written prior to his death. Can I tell you what the Apostle Paul said? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3, 4, and 5. Here's his testimony. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's uh, Simon Peter, then to the twelve, and Paul would go on to say, and to others, and to 500 people, and He also appeared to me alive. Most Bible scholars today, there again, even if they're not Christian Bible scholars, will say that what you just read in 1 Corinthians 15 is an early Christian creed. It's a way that Christians 
remembered the gospel of Jesus and retold the gospel of Jesus to others. Did you hear the rhyme of it, the movement of it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen. That's the gospel. When did, when did Paul receive it? Jesus was crucified A.D. 30. Paul converted to Christianity in two years later, A.D. 32. According to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, three years after he became a Christian, that would be A.D. 35, he went to Jerusalem, met Peter and the brother of Jesus, James. And that's where he received 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, and 5. Five years from the death of Jesus, we have evidence that the Christian church was teaching. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus physically rose from the dead, and Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. This is not late. This is not legend. This is not mythology. The Gospels stand up to historic scrutiny. These are the eyewitness testimonies of people who were there. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know this in your heart. You may not need to know it because you already believe, but you need to know that your faith is based on the eyewitness of testimony of people who were there and people who gave their lives for this testimony. And you, as a follower of Jesus, need to be prepared to answer the critics who say this is myth, it's legend, because their argument does not hold up to historic scrutiny. There's so much more I could have shared today, but our time is up. But if you are a skeptic, if you are someone who says, I'm struggling, this is something you can check off your list of questions. When a professor of literature says it's old, it's myth, it's legend, it was embellishment, you can now know he's not telling you the truth. In fact, there are many people who don't want to face the truth because if it's true Jesus rose from the dead, then I have to stand before a holy, righteous God and deal with my sins that he brings up in the reason he died for me. But that's also good news. Jesus is the one who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Will you put your faith in him today? Don't let all the questions and the skeptics and, and those who want to argue you out of your faith in Jesus take your eyes off this central truth. Christ died for you because he wanted to pay the penalty for your sin. He died, he rose from the dead, and because he's alive today, he can hear you when you pray and say, Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Maybe today you'll do that. I'll lead you to prayer right now. If you'd like to trust Christ, you can talk to him silently in your heart. And because he's alive from the grave, seated at the right hand of God the Father, coming back one day soon, you can know he hears you. And he's willing to give you the gift of eternal life. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to invite you to come back. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And I'm starting a new series called As It Is in Heaven. And we're going to talk about heaven next week. We're going to do a five-part series answer your questions about heaven and how do we know heaven is real we have it on good authority from one who died but who came out of that grave alive three days later 
And he's the one said, whenever you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you for this time today to just think about the evidence for this, this life-changing claim of Christianity that Christ died, was buried, physically rose from the dead, and was seen. And God, we thank you that today we have good evidence that they were not lying to us. This was not myth or legend that developed over time, but this is the eyewitness testimony of those who were there. And we thank you for the historical reliability we have in the Gospels. So, Father, I pray if there's someone in this room right now who's a Christian and they've been struggling with their faith, maybe they feel a little better equipped today to answer the questions of people who don't yet believe. And, Father, if there's someone who wants to believe, I pray that today they would recognize that all they have to do is turn from their sin and tell Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin, but I thank you for dying for me on the cross and I thank you for rising from the dead. And right now I call on you. Forgive me. And I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. And because you are God in flesh and you did rise from the dead, now that you've forgiven me of my sin, I want to learn more about you. And what I want to live for you. So Father, whatever the decision is that someone needs to make today, may they be found faithful before you to do it. If there's some way that we as a church can help someone in their next step, or answer their questions, or pray for them. I hope they'll come and let us do that right after this service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.